We've got our second Bible reading now, so if you've got a Bible and you can grab it out, it's Hebrews chapter 5, and some of, or all of chapter 6, half of chapter 5. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But... Land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what, it, what, it, what is said and puts to an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Good morning, friends. If you have the newsletter, uh, there's an outline on the inside. You might find that helpful to follow along. Keep your Bibles open to Hebrews uh, 5 and 6. We'll focus mainly on 5 and half of 6, um, the first part of 6. Um, it is a somber passage, this one. So let's come to God in prayer, asking that he'll help us, prepare our hearts to listen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word for us this morning will be like music to our ears and honey to our lips, but a sword to our hearts that will pierce us the deepest recesses of our soul to expose us and help us to see what we must believe and hold on to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our passage today is perhaps 
One of the hardest passages of Scripture to understand, or at least the hardest to accept, because it's a passage about falling away. And I'm sure we've asked that question, or we've heard those around us ask the question, can I lose my salvation? Can I one day not be saved, one day be saved, and then one day not be saved again? Is that at all possible? In my ministry experience, perhaps one of the saddest or even depressing news that I hear once in a while, and I do hear it, and when I hear it, my heart sinks. It's when I hear of someone who used to come to our church family, be a part of the ministry here, one who professed faith in Jesus Christ, even baptized, involved in our ministries, zealous, active, engaged in the things of God. But then to hear the news, they no longer go to church. Worse, they no longer believe. In fact, it wasn't too long ago I got in touch with someone who used to come and I just to check up, how are you going? But this person said to me, I'm no longer living as a Christian, which was sad to hear. My heart sank because I knew what that meant. And perhaps it's more common than we would like to hear. I know of ministers, those who are pastors and, and work in, in churches who have children who have walked away from the faith, and it just breaks their heart. And I, I know some amongst us even, Faithful Christian parents, you've raised your children up in the way of the Lord and to believe, to love the Lord, to be engaged in, in serving Christ and involved in the church. But one, raised exactly the same, but have gone wayward, rejected the Lord, and it's just heartbreaking. And if that is you, if, if you are one of those parents, you, then you need to hear this, that is... Don't be too hard on yourself. You see, the salvation of any soul is not ever dependent upon us at all. It's always in the hands of God. And so even as faithful parents, as faithful as we may be, it's never ever in our hands. And so those of us who are parents then, then you need to hear this, and that is entrust your children to the Lord's care. Our Father in heaven who is loving, who is merciful, who is gracious, but plead for their salvation. On your knees, plead for their salvation, hoping and praying that one day, just like the prodigal son, they'll return, they'll come to their senses and return to the Father's care. But the question this morning is, can you lose your salvation? Can we lose it? Can we be saved one moment and not the next? It's, it seems like our experience, I suspect, those we know, it seems like it does happen. And so how are we meant to make sense of this passage? Or more importantly, how do we make sure, as a church family, how do we make sure that not one soul here, all the little ones in Christ and Kids Church, not one soul will ever fall away? Well, this passage is for us. And what we find here are stern, strong, firm warnings. Warnings for the church that we must hear and we must heed. And we're meant to come to this passage with a sense of the, the gravity and the severity of these warnings. We're given two warnings here. Very simple. The first one is immaturity. The second one is apostasy. And so the first danger, immaturity. Now you, you heard the illustration as it was read. It's, it's quite simple to understand. It's quite straightforward. If you are a child, you eat like a child. If you're an adult, you'll eat like an adult. 
And so when our kids were infants, they would drink milk, of course. That's how they were nourished. And then when they started on solid food, Yvonne would uh, puree these uh, fruits, uh, pears and apples and pumpkin, and that's what they would eat. I wouldn't eat that stuff, but they loved it. <laughs> it looked pretty mushy, disgust. But they ate it, they loved it. In fact, one of my sons, Caleb, he, he loved the pumpkin so much that the pigment of his skin started to turn orange. And so we went to the doctor. The doctor said, well, just stop feeding him pumpkin. <laughs> but the illustration here is quite straightforward, isn't it? Adult Christians, you need to eat like adult Christians. But of course, for those of you who are new to the Christian faith, you've started with us recently, and, and you're grappling with what Christianity is about and who Jesus is, and well, you're on milk, and that's okay. It'll be okay for a while. But for those of us who have been walking the faith for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, and you come to church metaphorically holding on the milk bottle and sucking on it, then something is grossly wrong with that. You you still need to be spoon-fed as though you're still on the high chair, you know, like a parent. Here's the aeroplane, here you are, open your mouth now. You know, that metaphorically. And so that's the real danger. Do you see that? Look at verses 11 and 12, chapter 5. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. So what is this solid food? Well, to be on solid food, a bit like what we heard in the kids' talk, to be on solid food is not only to know the gospel about Jesus Christ, but to be on solid food means your life is consistent with that gospel. It is shaped by that gospel. You're living a life that is reflecting, responding. The gospel has made a difference in your life. Just like you know, any child. A child growing up in the household will know of the parent's love. And what do children do? They continue to receive and receive and receive. It's, it's the meals, it's the shelter, it's the clothes, it's the education. They continue to receive and that's okay. They're a child. They can't work. They can't do anything for themselves. That's okay. But a child who has grown and matured, how will they live? How will they be different? Well, they will respond to that love, won't they? They'll respond to the love of their parents. That is, they won't be throwing a tantrum when they don't get what they want. They'll know how to respond to that love by showing respect and honor to their parents. They'll take initiative in loving the household, in doing the chores without being asked. That is love. That is responding to the love. I thought I'd put that comment in just to help us parents out. But taking initiative in the household, responding in love. Your life reflects your parents' love. And so for the Christian then, the mature one is the one who's able to respond to the grace of Jesus Christ. And so live a life of righteousness. That is, I'm not going to throw a tantrum when life goes sour and I'm going to blame God. It's all your fault. I mean, that's what an infant would do. The one who is mature is able to discern what is right from wrong. He's able to make wise decisions. And you can often see whether you're a mature Christian or not by the type of decisions you make. You can see, you can see. And the one who is mature is, is not the one who's just receiving all the time, but the one who is producing, effective in the things of God, producing things for the kingdom of God, 
as opposed to the one who's on the high chest, still needing to be spoon-fed. And so we see, look at verses 13 and 14 now. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now what we have to understand at this point is that the author here doesn't mean maturity means you move on from the gospel, that you somehow graduate from the gospel. Not at all. The the gospel has to be the bedrock of our faith. It's the foundation of our faith. You never move on from the gospel at all. Instead, maturity looks like you, you, you go deeper into the gospel. That's maturity, and the gospel goes deeper into you. It changes you. Also, this does not mean maturity, does not mean where solid food is. You're, you're just munching all the time on dense theological ideas and debates. You know, am I infralapsarian or supralapsarian? Now, do you know what that means? Well, that's perhaps the point. Who cares? Well, actually, it is important, but who cares, right? If you eat and munch on all this solid food and you think it's just about reading theology, what might happen? Well, our head might just get bigger and bigger and bigger and it would just explode. And I do think that this is something that a church of our flavor, we need to be aware of, especially our church where we do love theology for the right reasons. But to munch on theology, reform theology, but for it to make no difference, no, no transformation to our lives at all, no loving of God more or loving of his people more, does not translate to righteous living, then it's just like what the Apostle Paul calls, you know, you're just a clanging gong. You're pointless. And so the exhortation here, the first danger, be aware. Don't be an infant. Don't remain an infant. And it is a point that is worth us reflecting on, all of us. I mean, it's worth doing that self-assessment, isn't it? Am I coming each week and I'm holding a milk bottle and I'm just sucking on it? Or have I grown? Have I matured? Can I pick up the knife and fork and I can feed myself now? Have I matured over the last year such that I can see my love for God, my love for Christ, my affection for him has grown because I've come to see more of his affection and his love and his sacrifice for me. Have I become more sensitive to the Spirit's work in my heart? Or those around you, when they look at your life and see the fruits of your life, can they say with confidence, and will they say with confidence, you are a disciple of Jesus? I mean, have I matured? Or have I backslided this past year? That's the first danger. And the second danger is connected. You see, the backsliding is connected to apostasy, which means I'm throwing in the faith altogether. Forget Jesus. And what's interesting and what is worth knowing is that apostasy doesn't just start off as apostasy. It begins as a slow drift. It's a slow drifting away. Slowly, 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 you move further and further away. It's not like I wake up one day and I, I've decided, that's it, I'm not believing, I'm no longer a Christian. It doesn't tend to work that way. Instead, it happens like a slow drift. And it looks a bit like this. It's skipping church for whatever reason. And eventually what happens? It just gets easier and easier to skip church. Of course, going to church does not make you a Christian, but it's one of the ways we drift. Or it's giving into peer pressure. 
or some sin, and that becomes easier and easier and becomes more comfortable and eventually becomes a habit. And I've drifted away. Or it's like that comment from one I followed up. It's preferring a lifestyle that is contrary to God's way. It's wanting to be in a relationship that I shouldn't be. It's dabbling in things I shouldn't. And eventually it takes hold of me. I've drifted. Or it's the worries of life. We all have worries in life, but somehow the worries of life has consumed me and and I'm not entrusting it to God. Or it's the pursuit, and we see this in our society, it's the pursuit of wealth and, and, and pleasures of this world. It starts off small, but it grows, and it continues to grow, and it's never satisfied. It's a bit like what happened with the Apostle Paul. Remember when he reported on Demas, what happened with him? He was meant to be with him, working with him as a gospel partner, but he deserted Paul because he loved this world more. It happens like a slow drift. And so here we see a serious warning. We need to hear this because... The drift can happen, and it may be too late before we find out. And what we see here in this passage, chapter 6 now, it's not a hypothetical situation. Otherwise, that's just an empty warning. This is speaking about those who have known the joys and the peace and the privileges of the Christian faith. However, this is where the theologians differ. It could, on the one hand, is this referring to Genuine Christians who were really part of the spiritual family of God and they've thrown it all in. They've lost their salvation. Is it talking about that first one? Genuine Christians. Or is this talking about those who have all the appearance of being a Christian? They've even professed their faith. But over time, it proved to be not genuine. Even though from their perspective, at that moment, it felt real. It was real to them. Well, which of these two? I think chapter 6 is about the second category. You know, you can declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but you don't believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You can believe that Jesus is true, completely true, historical, but you've never completely surrendered yourself to his kingship, to his lordship. I mean, simply believing that Jesus is true is not far enough. I mean, even the demons believe that, James speaks of. It's demonic faith. Or we have a look at verse 4 here. It can even be enlightened, but it does not mean transformation. I mean, think about Judas at this point. He was as close as you could get to the action. He was enlightened. He saw who Jesus was, but there was no transformation upon his heart. Or verse 4, you can taste the heavenly gift. You can taste the goodness of the word of God. You can taste it. You can taste the blessings and the joy and the peace of the gospel, which just means you've perhaps grown up in a Christian household. You've tasted how good it was. You've been raised by Christian parents. Or you've been part of a church for decades even. You've tasted that it was good, but you've never really taken hold of it. And I think we know that what that means as well, you know, metaphorically. You can taste Vegemite, or you can really taste it and still think it's disgusting. You can taste and you can taste. You can taste and you can swallow. Or verse 5, you could have even shared in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, that seems to suggest you're, you're, you're a genuine Christian. But remember what Jesus said in our first reading. I mean, you've prophesied in my name. You've performed miracles in my name. You've done all those things in my name, spiritual activities, shared in the Holy Spirit. But then what did Jesus say? Away from me, you evildoer. And so I think this is talking about those who, from their perspective, it's for real. All the appearances of being a Christian, but you can't really tell them apart. It's like the wheat and the tares. And so it's about those, then, who have been part of our church family, have been part of our growth groups, who have prayed with us, who have grown up in our creche and kids' church and youth group, who, are, who, who were even baptized up here, who publicly declared their faith. But profession of faith does not necessarily mean possession by the Spirit of God. Profession of faith does not necessarily mean possession by the Spirit of God. They show like they are a Christian, and from their perspective it was, but yet so close, but yet so far. It's why Billy Sunday, he once said this, and I think this is quite sober. He said, A man can slip into hell with his hand on the doorknob of heaven. Is that sobering? So close, yet so far. And so have a look back here, chapter 6, verse 6. It is impossible, here's the warning, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And I think this is the part that is hard to accept. It is impossible. I mean, do you feel the severity and the gravity of this? It is impossible. Because to have once said, I believe, but now I don't, it's making a mockery of the death of Christ. It's saying to Jesus, you wasted your time. You died for nothing. It's a travesty. And of course there is no salvation. It is impossible because you're rejecting the only saviour there is. And so the warning is this. If it appears to you that it is all for real, you have to make sure that it is real. Because if it's only the appearance of being a Christian, appearances will only last so long. Because eventually the fruits will show whether you're for real or not. And he now gives this illustration. The rain falls on all the land. Rain falls everywhere. Not different rain at all. But on one part of the land, it will produce good crop. On another part, it will be thorns and thistles and it will be burnt up. That's what we see. He's, he's teaching us verses 7 and 8. Have a look. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to, to those for whom it farm, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed, and in the end, it will be burned. And so what does that look like in the church? Well, it looks like this. The rain falls every week on everyone. The rain falls. The word is proclaimed. The Bible is read. The sermon is preached. The gospel is explained. And every week it falls on everyone just the same. And we might just listen in. We'll, we'll laugh with the jokes. We'll understand the illustration. We'll actually understand the text. We've even taken notes. But eventually the fruits will show 
whether you're for real or not. If I have no real relationship with God, it will show. And so you'll find this helpful. J.I. Packer, he said, The only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. How do you know you're for real, that your past conversion is for real? Your life now reflects that convertedness. And so it's why it can be unhelpful to hold on to Christian cliches. I'm sure many of us have heard this. Have you heard, once saved, always saved? What do you think? Yes or no? True or not? Once saved, always saved? Well, it's sort of like a trick question. It's yes or no. Yes, in that such a statement is trying to preserve the assurance, the certainty of salvation. If I have really surrendered my heart, my soul to Christ, then I have crossed the line. I've come from death to life. I've been brought into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. I mean, Jesus Christ himself said that the sheep, they listen to my voice. So if you are genuine, if you're amongst the flock of Jesus, you will listen to him. And Jesus says, they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one's powerful enough to snatch us out of the hands of Jesus. On one level, yes, it's true. But genuine faith will always be persevering faith. It will keep on believing if it's for real. It will not stop believing. And so present convertedness is proof of past conversion. But this is the no side. You see, such cliches is unhelpful if it gives us a sense of false security. You see, I cannot say I'm saved because when I was 12, I prayed the sinner's prayer with my parents and I used to go to church, but now my lifestyle is completely contrary to God's way. I don't really believe, I don't really care much about Jesus. He's a nice guy and all. But that's not real fruit at all. You see, so such cliches can give a false sense of security. Genuine faith will always be persevering faith. It's why in the Bible, when the call is called to to believe, the verb to believe, it's never a once-off decision. In the past, I've done it once, it's always an ongoing commitment. Never a once-off decision, but an ongoing commitment. And so those of you who love grammar, it's not a past tense, it's not an heiress verb, it's a It's an ongoing, it's a present active participle. It's ongoing. I need to keep on believing. I need to keep on committing. And it's perhaps why the language of losing your salvation does not really make sense. Can you lose your salvation? Well, think about it. It doesn't really make sense because you never really had it in the first place to lose it. I mean, it might seem from the perspective of this one, That I was a real believer, but you never really had it to lose it. It was only a profession. Salvation can't be lost. It's always a gift. And so what are we to make of these warnings? They're strong warnings. They're severe warnings. Well, the reason why we're given these warnings here, it's in fact not to terrify us and to paralyze us, but it was given out of love. You see, God's way of keeping us on the straight and narrow, God's way of preserving us, helping us to persevere in faith, is to give us these strong warnings. They're like guardrails, warning signs. Don't cross that line. 
And one of the ways God loves us is to show us where the ends are, where the guardrails are, so that we might stay on the straight and narrow. And so such a passage, it can be terrifying, but it shouldn't be. And if you're sitting here, you're asking, well, am I saved? Can I lose it? Well, remember, you can't really lose it. Well, if you're feeling that way, if anything, that is a positive sign. Why is it a positive sign? Because it shows that you are concerned for your salvation. You're not indifferent to your salvation. So what do you do? Well, just keep on believing. As simple as that. Keep on believing. And that was the confidence of this author. You see, it was ultimately to exhort them, to encourage them, not to tell them off. And he was writing this to remind them of the certain hope. Look at verse 9. Even though we speak this way, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. We've seen the fruit. We've seen the fruits of your faith. God sees it. God knows us. That's more important. And so how do we prevent ourselves from falling away? It's really quite simple. It might be hard to accept this passage, but it's really quite simple. And that is, stick with Jesus every day. Stick with Jesus. Don't turn away. Don't deny. Don't throw in the towel. Don't reject him. Lean on him. Trust in him. Stay with him. Be anchored to him. And that's what we see finally, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. We anchor our soul to Jesus. As simple as that. And once you're stuck with Jesus, we don't drift. We don't allow ourselves to drift. We're stuck with him. And so what does this passage do to you then? What about you? Where do you stand? You see, for many of us in our church family, you are pressing on in faith. And praise the Lord. It is evident, it is clear. You have the fruits of genuine faith. And we've seen that. If we know each other well, you've seen that. In tough times, you can see that our brothers and sisters, you lean more heavily upon God. You don't throw in the towel. When you experience conflict and difficulties and difficult relationships, you see the gospel at work. There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. When you're called to carry the cross, what do you do? You carry the cross. You're diligent. You're not lazy. And you're worth imitating. Keep at it if that is you. And that's many of you. But for some of us, we're perhaps backsliding and we know it. And what's the exhortation? Don't risk it. Don't risk it. Don't drift. Don't be lazy when it comes to your faith. And it doesn't mean now I have to do more and be more and try harder. It's the gospel of grace. It's not about us in the first place. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. He's the saviour. I'm not. I cling to him. I anchor my soul to him. But there are signs we should all be aware of when it comes to drifting. I'll give you three that I've seen in the life of our church family. Three signs of drifting. The first one, the priority of meeting with God's people becomes less important. That is the first sign, the first sign of danger. Church attendance does not save us at all. But what it does reveal is your heart, that something else has taken priority over it. 
And for those of us who are parents, if it's not our priority as our children are young and as they are growing, we cannot expect them to hold that same priority. And so once they turn from teenagers to adults and they have all the freedom in the world and they're no longer coming to church and we're left asking why, well, ask yourself why. You see, unless those of our little ones, they grow up especially in kids' church and youth group, they're grounded deeply in the gospel and they see the priority of the family, drift happens. That's the first one. The second one is this, and we've seen this in our church family. Who, and perhaps speaking to the single amongst us, who you choose to date and marry. When relationships become more important than the Lord, and we choose to even marry those who are outside the Lord, for many drift happens. In God's kindness, God will sometimes bring you back, and he does that often. We've seen that. But that's another sign. And finally, and a third sign, is when sin, hidden sin, becomes more and more comfortable than doing the right thing. And so if that applies to any of you, don't allow the drift to start. Turn back. Anchor your soul to Jesus. See how beautiful he is as your saviour. And finally, for some of us, this passage you're listening for, you know, half an hour, and it has not triggered any emotional reaction in your heart at all. Maybe we're just a bit indifferent to this passage. Well, I think that's the most dangerous position to be in. And you need to hear this more than anyone else. Because one day we will front up to the gates of heaven and we'll see Jesus and we'll be asked, why should I let you in? And our answer might be, well, I attended St. Stephen's Presbyterian Church. It was Presbyterian, surely. I, I was baptized by the minister there. He, I made them my profession in front of the church. I was engaged in ministry. I gave a lot of money. I, I did a lot. What will Jesus say if that's our answer? I mean, they are words that we do not want to hear at all. He'll say what we heard in that first reading. Away from me, you evildoer. Instead, when we see Jesus, what do we say? Well, we can only come in because of you. Our soul has been anchored to you our whole life. And I'm not, I'm not giving any other answer but you. And I'll end with this with Paca again. Your faith will not fail when God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Let us be that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your love and kindness and mercy, you do give us strong warnings to keep us on the straight and narrow. And we pray, Lord, that those of us who have professed faith, we pray that it is for real, that the fruits will show it and prove it to be genuine. Those of us, Lord, who are a bit wayward, bring us back by your mercy. And particularly those of us we, as parents with, with those children who have gone wayward, we pray for and we plead for your mercy to bring them back to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.